0: From CAFE and WNYC studios, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara.
1: While this president has not sought legislation against the press, uh, I think it's probably still more of a danger because there's never been one as angry and as consistently upset at the way he's covered.
0: That's Floyd Abrams.
1: He's a legendary
0: First Amendment attorney. He represented the New York Times after the Pentagon Papers, but also Citizens United during that controversial Supreme Court case. I'm so glad we're speaking to Floyd because free speech, First Amendment law, it's pretty complicated. It involves a lot of contradictions and balancing of interests that any democracy holds dear. And it's an interesting field right now with a president who both enjoys his free speech rights pretty liberally, but also threatens to curb the speech rights of others. That's coming up. But first, let's get to your questions.
1: Hi, this is Dan from Dallas, Texas. Uh, There are recent reports that
0: Trump attempted to get Mueller fired back in June of 2017, but backed off when White House counsel threatened to quit. I was wondering uh, your thoughts on if these reports were true, how Mueller would proceed with his investigation given this information. Uh, Thanks, Dan, from Dallas. I knew we had friends in Texas. So that's a great question. As an initial matter, I'll say, I think the news that Donald Trump requested that his White House counsel fire Bob Mueller is extraordinary for a couple of reasons. One, it is another piece of the puzzle that shows that Donald Trump wants more than anything else for the Russia investigation to go away. That appears to be the reason he fired Jim Comey. That appears to be the reason why he wants to do all sorts of other things. And the firing of Robert Mueller, who, by the way, as a reminder to everyone, not that you need a reminder, has impeccable credentials, is a Republican, was appointed by the president's own handpicked Republican deputy attorney general, whom he praised to high heaven. It's that Robert Mueller. Second, if the report is correct, what it shows is there's been a lot of lying coming out of the White House and also out of the president's mouth. On numerous occasions, and you probably have seen montages of this on cable television ad nauseum, the president himself has said, Sarah Huckabee Sanders has said, various other people out of the White House have said, Kellyanne Conway among them, that there was no consideration of firing Robert Mueller. It was never discussed in the White House. It was never part of the plan. It hasn't been talked about. And those blanket statements about interest in firing Robert Mueller came from people in the time period after these reports say that Don McGahn refused to carry out the order to fire Bob Mueller. What's the relevance of those lies? Well, it's a pattern showing that people think that what they were doing was wrong, and they don't want something to get out. Often you can build some kind of case against people, not only based on the actions that they engage in, but on a pattern of lying about it afterwards, because it shows, as we argue in court from time to time, consciousness of guilt. Last point I'll make about that. I'm not sure I agree with this argument, but there was, you know, a famous independent prosecutor by the name of Ken Starr. Ken Starr, uh, not everyone liked, uh, but had a role in pursuing an investigation of a prior president, Bill Clinton, wrote in the Starr Report as a justification for one of the articles of impeachment, the fact that Bill Clinton lied to the public. I watched Ken Starr on TV last week. And when asked the question about whether or not the fact that Trump may have lied over a discussion about firing Robert Mueller, in the words of Ken Starr, conservative, Republican, lifelong, he said that's a very serious issue. And it sounded like he was saying it's a potential basis for Congress to impeach him. As for the thrust of your question, how does Bob Mueller react? He would probably react the way he does to everything else, keeps his head down, does his job. It cannot have come as a great surprise to him that Trump might be considering firing him. It's been you know, on the lips of lots of people for a long time. But he just does his job, as he should.
1: Hi, this is Nick
0: Bird from Florida State University, and I remember you saying something like, if Donald Trump does anything to attempt to cause the firing of Robert Mueller, he should be impeached immediately. Or impeachment proceedings should happen, or something like that. So I'm wondering, uh, now that there seems to be some evidence that... Donald Trump did cause such an event? Do you think he should be impeached? If so, why? If not, why? Thanks so much for your podcast. Bye. Uh, That's a great question. I don't remember exactly how I phrased it, but what I had in my mind is the idea that if Donald Trump, on top of all the other things that he's done, firing Jim Comey, telling Comey to lay off of Michael Flynn, pardoning Joe Arpaio, telling Jeff Sessions if they could do something about the investigation of Joe Arpaio, and all sorts of other things that are impossible to list here, the question of impeachment becomes a more serious one. And if he got rid of Robert Mueller, then that would clearly take it over the line in my mind. And the reason for that is impeachment, unlike a criminal case under you know Title 18 of the U.S. Code, is a political determination. And it's largely a determination of whether or not a president, I think, has abused his power. And I don't think anyone should be impeached based on a newspaper report. So although I have no reason to doubt the report about Donald Trump directing McGann to fire Bob Mueller, I don't know the details of it. I don't know the timing of it. I don't know how serious it was. I don't know what Don McGahn actually said. That's a problem with a lot of these reports. You know, I take it at its word, and there hasn't been a very strong denial out of the White House when there usually is. So I'd like to know more details about that if it was, uh, you know, quite as stark as has been reported. But if there's a removal of Robert Mueller, I think impeachment should be on the table. And by the way, everyone should remember that we're not just talking about any potential report or action or referral to Congress with respect to Donald Trump. There have been multiple people charged with crimes. A couple of them have pleaded guilty. So all these people who run around saying that there's nothing to see here, they are actual human beings who have been charged by a grand jury in America the firing of Bob Mueller would be a huge, I think, crisis event and should have deep and long consequences. One final thing about the Mueller investigation, there's been a lot of discussion about what happens next, and in particular, whether or not the Mueller team will sit down for an interview with Donald Trump. And some people who have been spouting off on that include the former United States attorney and governor of New Jersey, Chris Christie. Should the president sit down with him face to no. face? Why not? I don't believe so. Listen, I don't think there's been any allegations, credible allegations against the president of the United States. And I don't think the president of the United States, unless there are credible allegations, which I don't believe there are, should be sitting across from a special counsel. The presidency is different. I don't think they should do that. That was Chris Christie on This Week with George Stephanopoulos on ABC. So I have a few reactions to what Chris Christie said. First of all, it is a natural, normal, obvious step as you near the end of any investigation, swirling around a particular person, to request and receive an interview of the person at the top of the food chain. That happened in every major investigation that I can think of that was overt out of my office. Chris Christie, you can be absolutely certain, when he was the United States attorney, had his prosecutors at the end of their investigation or towards the end, have an opportunity to sit down with a person who may have been the main subject of it. Chris Christie not only has experience as the United States attorney in this regard, but he has particularly interesting experience of being the center of such an investigation, namely the Bridgegate investigation and that scandal that engulfed his governorship when he was governor. And he himself sat down at the end of the day with the FBI, as has been reported, to talk to them about his involvement or lack of involvement in that. So the idea that a president of the United States shouldn't sit down with prosecutors, he should know better than that. I understand the point that the president is different. The president already has a lot of protections that other citizens don't get. And if we really do believe in the idea that no one is above the law, and I think we do, and that includes the president, I think there is, at a minimum, a requirement that the Mueller team, in the natural course, ask for an interview and the president sit down for the interview. By the way, the president himself, people like to question his intelligence. He's not a dummy, and he has said on the record in front of reporters who are recording it multiple times, how he has done nothing wrong, this is all nonsense, that he wants to speak on the record, and he would do so under oath. Let me just say one final thing before we get to my interview. And that is, you know, as I'm sitting here right now in the darkened podcast studio, it's 5 p.m. on Wednesday. And I don't know how much news will break between now and when this pod drops. I got producers handing to me News stories about what Donald Trump may have said to Rod Rosenstein, asking him if he was on his team or not, which doesn't surprise me, but I haven't read the article yet, so maybe later I will take to Twitter and tell you what I think about that, if anything. There's also this debate of an extraordinary nature on whether or not Devin Nunes, who is the chair of the House Intel Committee, is going to go forward with with the president's approval, releasing a four-page classified memo over apparently the very strong objection Of the FBI that has a strong interest in making sure classified information that harms national security is not disseminated, uh, you know, like newspapers that are thrown on your driveway. We've never seen anything like that before. Now, it may be that there's good reason to make sure that that stuff doesn't get out. It may be that there's good reason for some things that are being described in it to get out. But the impasse between the premier law enforcement agency in the face of being attacked, I think, unfairly and relentlessly by the sitting president of the United States is something that should cause people concern. Concern is maybe too mild a word for it. The person who is making the allegations and who is pushing to release a memo is, as I said, Devin Nunes, who I thought was supposed to be recused from the matter altogether. And as a person who worked on the transition for President Trump and as someone has pointed out just a couple of minutes ago, has not denied that the White House itself, which is a separate branch of government, from my understanding of civics from some time ago, is not denying that the White House and he coordinated on the development of that memo, which is intended to put the FBI in a bad light and is intended to politically, I believe, politically help the president. That's a mess. It's a mess for a long time, whatever happens with its release or, or lack of release and I, I worry a little bit even more than I did a week ago that we're politicizing things that should not be politicized I think if there's misconduct at the FBI or bias that should come out and people should be held accountable and I think that's irrefutable but it has to be done right I have no quarrel with people who are saying that the House Intelligence Committee shouldn't be taking a look but you got to do it right. My guest this week is Floyd Abrams. He's America's best-known advocate for the First Amendment. I'm really glad we're speaking with him this week because given everything that's going on and what people are talking about, it's important to discuss the First Amendment, what it means, and there's no better person to talk about that with than Floyd Abrams. That's coming up. Stay tuned. What's the number one sign of a bad home security system? A home security system that's so complicated, you never use it. That's exactly the type of security system SimpliSafe has spent a decade fighting against. They believe that simple is safer. And it's exactly why SimpliSafe is the home security for right now, when feeling safe at home has never been more important. Safe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your home 24-7. Order online with the click of a button. Open the box, place the sensors, plug it in. And your home is protected around the clock. No technician or salesperson has to come and disrupt your house. And you don't need to pay any outrageous monthly fees or sign a two-year contract. Their 24-7 professional monitoring and emergency dispatch starts at 50 cents a day. That's a deal, considering that SimpliSafe was named Best Overall Home Security of 2020 by U.S. News and World Report. Head to SimplySafe.com slash Preet and get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee. That's simplysafecom slash Preet to make sure they know that our show sent you. Floyd Abrams, thanks for being on the show. Good to be here. So for people who don't know you, they should understand that you have been described, I think, correctly as, you know, perhaps the greatest, most accomplished advocate of the First Amendment in the country, or at least, the, you know, the most prolific practitioner of law that relates to the First Amendment in the country going back several decades. Is that fair? That's very nice. Uh, (laughs) I think it's fair. You've said in the past, speaking about presidents and their relationship with the press, and that's much of the debate that's going on these days, including on this show. We've had a lot of journalists on. You said once uh, presidents of the United States are rarely fond of the press.
1: Has that been historically true? Absolutely. Absolutely. Going back to when? I mean, even the ones... I mean, Washington was sort of heroic in all sorts of ways. He didn't talk about the press much, but Adams hated the press. Je- my favorite Jefferson line uh, was uh, when he uh, wrote to someone uh, and he said, newspapers ought to be divided into four parts, truths, probabilities, possibilities, and lies. And he said the lies part will probably fill most of the paper. <laughs> now, that's our hero— Uh, who wrote the Declaration of Independence uh, and and who was very responsible for having a Bill of Rights in the first place. But uh, presidents uh, always feel misrepresented. Rarely, if ever, have praised the press. Teddy Roosevelt tried to put uh, Pulitzer, the great publisher, in jail. Putting this in historical
0: context, and there are degrees, obviously. It depends on the president, depends on the time. And there are many more examples I know you've written about with respect to presidents and their relationships with the press. So today there's an antagonistic relationship, to say the least, between the current president and the press. So should we not be alarmed at all based on the historical context?
1: No, I think we should be alarmed. So should we have been uh, alarmed throughout all of history? You know, the, the, the way it's different, I think, is this. First, we've never had a president who was so obsessed by how he was covered in the press. And we've never had a president who engaged in a sort of daily denigration of the press, uh, you know, over and over again, often in the same words, uh, denouncing as fake news, even when there's no argument about it being accurate or not, but really meaning not the point, not what I want you to print, Oh, why would you say all these bad things about me, uh, etc.? while this president has not sought legislation against the press and has not caused the indictment uh, of any press representatives? Teddy Roosevelt did that. Uh, I think it's probably still more of a danger because there's never been one as angry and as consistently upset at— the way he's covered. You said once, Donald Trump, quote, may be the greatest
0: threat to the First Amendment since the passage of the Sedition Act of 1798.
1: That was foolish of me. (laughs) Uh, uh, Looking back on it, that was before he took office and I should have waited. Uh, But what do you think of that statement now? I think it's overstated in terms of uh, what has happened so far. Uh, Am I concerned? Yes. I took him too literally you know, when he said one of his first things he was going to do was change the libel law, put aside that he can't for various reasons we can talk about if you want. We don't have president to run for office saying that and saying other things that he wants to do by way of limitation on the press. And I was concerned that someone who says things like that might follow up. Right. Well, there's still three years left. Yeah.
0: The bottom line on the issue of of change to the libel laws, there's not really any way that this president or any other president can cause that to happen, in your view?
1: I don't really think so. Uh, For one thing, we don't have a federal libel law. Uh, There is no United States libel law. We have 50 states that have libel laws. So there's nothing to amend. There's nothing to change. It would take a brand-new for the first time in American history, federal libel law. But beyond that, the reason that people like President Trump and Mr. Trump in his earlier days find it difficult to recover in libel cases, apart from the fact that very often the truth has been told about them, is that under American libel law as affected by the First Amendment, You can't win a libel case if you're a public figure or a public official unless you prove both that what was said was not true and that the speaker knew it or suspected it wasn't true. And that's a very major change in the law Uh, that was adopted in 1964 and reaffirmed by the Supreme Court ever since then. And it is very First Amendment protective, but it does make it. Harder for a Donald Trump to win a libel suit and makes it impossible for a state to, to change its libel law unless you change the First Amendment. Why do you, why do you think Donald Trump says things like that
0: when, they're, when it's really not a possible thing to do? Is he trying to have a chilling my, effect?
1: My guess is that he's been told he can't win a libel case even though people have said things about him that aren't true. And he finds it impossible to accept. It's frustrating. Uh, totally frustrating. I mean, he's used the libel law occasionally simply to punish speakers. He sued the Chicago Tribune for an architectural review that they had, said he was going to build the biggest building in New York. Their critics said, That's the silliest thing I've ever heard of. And Trump sued. Right. Well, there's nothing stopping you from suing. That's the thing. Ultimately, you may have almost zero chance of success. But you can still hurt people by suing them. And the Chicago Tribune had to spend, in those days, $60,000 defending that case. Why is it important, from the perspective of the Supreme
0: Court and for our law, for public figures to have less protection than ordinary people?
1: Basically, because there's nothing more important by way of speech than speech critical of the government. That's what the First Amendment protects most of all, and most clearly of all, and most historically rooted of all is that you're allowed to say anything about the government. The government can't sue you, like New York City, Chicago can't bring a lawsuit. Chicago tried once back in the 1920s. And again, all of that is because that sort of speech, speech about people in power, the government itself and the like, uh, is the most important sort of thing that needs protection. You were
0: involved famously in the Pentagon Papers case. Did you see the movie, The Post? Yes, I have. Are you annoyed that it's mostly about The Washington Post and not The New York Times? Yes, I am. You are?
1: <laughs> I, I wasn't sure I was going to get— more <laughs> than that. Uh, uh, I mean, it's a good movie. You would have preferred uh, the movie about The New York Times. It doesn't have to be about The Times, but, I mean, it does seem to me that the movie is basically true about what The Washington Post did, but the reality remains— The Post was not a big player. It didn't matter much in the Pentagon Papers case. Uh, It's not just that the Times had the Pentagon Papers for three months, worked on them, checked them out for both authenticity and that they wouldn't be harmful to national defense and the like, uh, but that the case was a New York Times case. Uh, the, The Post came to it when the Times was enjoined, a court order barred them from publishing while the court looked at the at the facts of the case. And Daniel Ellsberg, who was the source of the Pentagon Papers, uh, provided the Washington Post with some of them and other newspapers uh, with uh, other parts of this 7,000-page study that had been commissioned by Defense Secretary McNamara. So... The Post's role was simply not very great. I think that uh, while the movie tries to acknowledge the Times was first and talks about the competitive feelings at the Post about the Times, it's really hard to make a movie which tells the story through the vision, the, the visage of the Washington Post. Well, let's talk about the rest of the
0: story a little bit. In your role in one of the most important cases in this area in modern times, New York Times versus the United States, how did you get involved as an advisor, legal advisor to the New York Times on the question of whether or not they could publish the
1: Pentagon Papers? Well, first, I was not involved uh, on the, uh, the, uh, in the decision-making process. I had never represented the Times. My firm did represent NBC, though— we were working on another press case, the issue of confidential sources of journalists. And large entities in the press, the New York Times, CBS and NBC and ABC and others, all decided to have one brief before the Supreme Court on that issue. Um, And we agreed to retain a a law school professor of mine named Alexander Bickel. And I gave a lunch And he came to the lunch and he spoke, but by purest chance, it was the day after the Pentagon Papers started to be published. And so everyone wanted to talk about that. And so Bickel and I, with what I've always thought of as the enormous self-confidence of lawyers without clients, (laughs) mouthed off about how President Nixon would never go to court because the Pentagon Papers weren't bad about him and about how the Times would obviously win because we didn't have prior restraints on speech in America. We didn't know that the Times lawyers had told them they would lose they would lose their television licenses. People would go to jail at the highest level of the Times. Uh, and we certainly didn't know, and the Times didn't know, that that night uh, when the government announced it was going to go to court, uh, that law firm told the Times they would not represent them. And so the times, because why?
0: Because they they thought it, it would be an unpatriotic act.
1: I don't think that was the reason. I think we now know, because President Nixon taped himself and the like, that law firm was asked by Attorney General John Mitchell not to do the case, and so the Times found itself, as one author later put it, like a vicar found in a house of ill repute at midnight without a lawyer, and here Bickel and I had been so confident. And so sure, uh, as you can only be without a client, and they retained us, and that's how it began.
0: Can we comment just on that because I'm curious as a lawyer, although I don't have any clients at the moment either, (laughs) so I can speak with confidence if I want about certain things. The call from the attorney general to
1: a private lawyer at the time saying, don't bring this case, what do you make of that? I'm not upset at that. I don't think it was improper— but maybe I maybe I'm just uh, happy, so happy that the law firm you got to done, do the case <laughs> didn't do the case, and I got to do it. That's one thing about lawyers, right? Yeah. Sometimes. Well, what do you think? Are you are, are you well? I'm, offended I think,
0: by. It? You know, it's an interesting question. There's a lot of things that get written about, where the story is, you know, someone in government called someone else in government outside of government, and said, "Do this or don't do that," and the devil's in the details. So, I don't know, and I haven't studied this closely, maybe you know, but if the call was, look, you should just understand that in good faith I'm telling you this is terrible for the country. It's not a good idea, and your firm will fall into disrepute, and I'm persuading you at arm's length not to bring this case. That's one thing. At the other end of the spectrum, if the call was, listen, you're dead in this town, the president is going to do everything he can to make sure that clients don't come to you and ambassadorships will not go to your partners and all sorts of other manner of using carrot and stick. And that's a whole different
1: story. Right. So ba- so I don't know. And I don't know the reality of it. I can imagine that was a very short call. That is to say that neither uh, of your hypotheticals was there because the relationship was close between the law firm uh, and people in the administration. It's a scary thing, I presume, when you are
0: in the media and the government says through a white house or or a cia director or an attorney general and they say at least initially if you do that if you publish that national security will be compromised if you publish that as they sometimes say people will die don't you care about america i'm guessing that was saying what some people in the public think
1: that that's a moment where you pause I think that's right, and uh, that really was one of the reasons that The Times spent all those three months preparing these stories, uh, interviewing former CIA, former Defense Department people about particular parts of these uh, Pentagon papers to see if they would harm national security. But beyond that, think of it. We're in the middle of a war. There are American POWs being held secret, always secret, and never successful talks in which we were helped by our allies to see if we could end the war. That was one of the major arguments made by the government in the case was that it would embarrass our allies. It turned out to be Canada and Australia were doing their best to talk somehow to the North Vietnamese to see if something could be worked out. Now, the courts held that diplomatic embarrassment is not enough to lead to suppression uh, of free expression, and that's a very important part of the ruling, I think. But that doesn't mean that a newspaper doesn't have enormous, at least a newspaper ought not to consider very seriously the potential harm that publication can do. On the one hand, you're saying that responsible journalists, New York Times or whoever else,
0: in the face of a request not to publish something on the ground, on the stated ground, that it would harm national security, it's incumbent on the media outlet, you know, to be responsible, careful, evaluated in good faith, right? Yes. And, but you're also saying, well, some people don't have any business doing that because they don't have the experience, but they still might call themselves journalists, particularly now when there's a proliferation of of journalists, including people like Julian Assange, how are we supposed to figure out who has the wherewithal to question a government request to keep something secret or not?
1: I think this is one of these areas where certain risks inherently come with the sort of freedom that we have. And one of the risks is that people will either make bad judgments or, in my view, no judgments. Uh, and and simply go ahead and publish. Now, we're in a very different world now in terms of the modern nature of communication where sometimes it's almost easier for the press because everything's coming out anyway because the circumstances of their getting information is that it's going to be on the internet tomorrow. Again, in my much
0: smaller universe not necessarily involving, you know, a war, an outlet would say, we understand what you're saying. We understand that we would harm the investigation and harm the ability to hold people accountable. And maybe money would disappear that was meant for victims. We get it. But you know what? These other guys are also hot on the trail and we can't be beaten by them. And that does, that mm-hmm.
1: seems to me not so good for the public. No. And that that's not a good argument either. Uh, I mean, it's, a, it's an honest argument <laughs> because— People yes, made it. People made it. because Yeah, I, I, but, but I mean, it's honest, and that, that's just what they were thinking. <laughs> it's that they'll be beaten, and what's the point of getting beaten? I mean, one one thing that's real in the movie The Post is that I think it makes clear that what Ben Bradley wanted was to be a great newspaper and to beat The Times—
0: there's always been this debate about how to view a demand or a characterization by the government that something is secret. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who think things are overclassified, you know, might surprise some people that even prosecutors thought things were unclassified, you know, were overclassified. Because for us to bring certain kinds of case sensitive cases in court, we have to get the permission of the intelligence community to declassify things. Mm. To do the exactly what everybody wanted us to do, which is to hold a terrorist accountable or someone involved in espionage accountable, and there's this great resistance to declassifying anything, but at the same time, you want to test how valid the claim of of harm from declassification would be. Do you find in that circumstance, but this whole debate about a supposed four-page memo written by uh, Congressman Nunez on the Intelligence Committee in the House, you have an argument by the government, the, the Department of Justice saying... Don't release this memo because there's classified information in it. And the Congress, another branch of government, but still the government of the same party is saying, we don't care. We're going to release it anyway. Do you have a view about that?
1: Well, I do. I mean I I think it's uh, wholly irresponsible for Congressman Nunes and his committee not to submit it to the Department of Justice, which is all they've asked, is for them to pass judgment. Uh, on uh, how dangerous, if at all, how revealing, if at all, uh, the the information contained in it may be. Uh, I mean, I don't know another circumstance in which the Intelligence Committee of the Senate or the House has not submitted to the FBI or relevant other relevant authorities classified information to get a judgment from them as to The importance of the classification. I would say the biggest win, by the way, we got in the Pentagon Papers case, was that the courts refused to defer to the fact of classification. Going back to the Nunes memo for a moment, do you think, and maybe this is overstated,
0: that this dynamic of a congressional committee saying to its own, you know, to the country's justice department, uh, notwithstanding your claim of classification and and request to review, we're going to rush ahead and disclose anyway. Does that have any impact on how you think a newspaper in the future will view the same kind of request from the Justice Department and say, well, look at those guys on the Intelligence Committee, or do you think they will remain responsible to the degree they have been before?
1: I don't think that the responsible press will be guided by Representative Nunes. <laughs> okay. uh, uh, so... <laughs> Every journalist thinks there is vast overclassification. So none of them think the mere fact of classification is a sufficient basis not to publish relevant information. What they're looking for is, is this a serious matter? I mean, are we going to be heard or not? Do you think reporters should ever uh, receive a subpoena from the government? Uh, yes, I mean I can imagine circumstances. Are you going to uh, get in trouble for saying that? Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> There's something about age, though. This is one where being a little older helps. Yeah, and it's uh, it's just audio. Uh, yeah, that's right. Maybe no one will hear it. <laughs> uh, they won't see it, that's for sure. Yeah, but uh, I mean, look, there are genuine national security interests, um, and uh, uh, and there are situations in which. Uh, the exposure of a leaker is in the national interest. I think one of the first ways that you and I had any interaction
0: was a decade ago when I was in the Senate working for Senator Schumer. He and Senator Spector and some others had proposed a bill to enact into legislation the privilege, a reporter's shield. How do you balance the need for the free flow of information against the need for national security in this particular context?
1: Look, I think the presumption ought to be not just that the press has a right to publish, but that journalists have a right to promise confidentiality. There are issues as to who is a journalist and who not. It's hard to uh, define. Uh, which it, and it is hard to define. That was one of the, the biggest uh, sticking points. Uh, and, I, I know. Uh, and look, all the states have tried because just about every state now has a shield law. Or if it doesn't have a shield law, the courts have found shield protection for the press, I think the last number I saw was like 49, every state but Wyoming, I think. No, my answer is I don't think there are no circumstances in which a journalist, in which a subpoena, what, secrets of certain weapons, for example, certain plans, secret plans of responding to certain activities. But the fact that there's a problem doesn't mean that, that we can just escape the issue. The problem is most of the time the information revealed has not done harm by any way of looking at it. I took a look 10 years after the Pentagon Papers case to try to answer the question as follows. A majority on the Supreme Court and people, including justices who voted for us, believed publication would do harm, would likely do harm, including Justice Douglas, including Justice Stewart, people whose votes you know we desperately needed uh, 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 to win the case. Their view was the government hadn't proved with sufficient clarity and the like that it would do harm, but they thought it likely would do harm. So I thought I'd try to have a look and see if it did. And I simply re-interviewed the government witnesses to ask them if they thought any harm had come. And none of them thought that there'd been any harm in fact. And a few of them thought that it was a good thing we had the litigation uh, and, and helped to establish or re-establish how hard it is for the government to win such a case. I think people don't always think of the idea of free
0: speech, I think people, when they think of free speech, they often say, you know, free speech is always good and it always brings a benefit. But there is speech that does harm. Sure. And, but the analysis often is there may be more harm to democracy in the country overall if we su- suppress speech. So, for example, you know, an, an issue that some people struggle with in the country, particularly lately, uh, is hate speech. Right. There are some democratic countries in the world that criminalize hate speech, correct? Sure, almost all.
1: Almost all democratic countries do.
0: So if you walk into the street, you hurl racial epithets at mm-hmm. a person or, or simply say them out loud at a rally, you can go to prison for that in other democratic countries. In Canada,
1: in England. Our neighbors to the north. Yeah. Uh, whose system is better in that regard? I think for us, our system is better. Uh, Canada had a case in their Supreme Court a few years ago in which a religious uh, zealot was very concerned, very upset, very angry because the schools in Sus- high schools in Saskatchewan were about to teach about homosexuality. He printed on single pages a denunciation of the school board saying they, they were going to teach buggery, they were going to teach this, they were going to teach that, a number of overtly anti-gay slurs in this material, and he put it in mailboxes around town. He was convicted in Canada of a crime, of defaming a group, a discreet group uh, of people. He had to pay a fine for it. He didn't go to jail, but he was convicted. The Canadian Supreme Court upheld the finding. And, you know, we have cases here where What, the Westboro Baptist Church, you know, parades outside churches as close as the police will let them come when American soldiers are being mourned, who've been killed in Afghanistan or Iraq, with signs denouncing the soldiers, the the dead soldiers, and mainly focusing on this is God's punishment because America is too favorably oriented towards gay people. And it was a good thing they say that the soldiers dead, right? It goes to the U.S. Supreme Court, the Chief Justice writes an opinion saying speech of this sort is especially protected, not non-protected, protected by the First Amendment, because it deals with the public issue, gays in the military, the role of gays in American life. And the Chief Justice said we don't we don't allow the suppression. Of such speech. Now, it's not that Canada isn't a free country or that Western Europe is in chains, but we've chosen a different path, in part because our history, or at least what we take to be our history, has led us to be much more concerned and afraid of government. And we even look abroad sometimes for our lessons about what happens if government. Is too empowered to affect speech. European countries have a very different view and a different history.
0: You've represented some folks who have engaged in hate speech. What is that like for you personally? What, what kind of what kind of hate speech gets directed at you, for example?
1: Well, fortunately, my my role in hate speech cases has been more as a commenter than than counsel. That's not easy. I mean, I've had it in some ways easier than a lot of other people who sort of toiled in the First Amendment vineyards. Uh, I I haven't represented pornographers. What kind of line is that? I I haven't represented, uh, you know, a lot of the people who have said some of the worst things that our Supreme Court has said the First Amendment protects. You know, I I haven't uh, been accused quite as often as others. Is that by happenstance you haven't represented those people, or have you de- have you declined representations of that? I nature? Occasionally, have to have declined representation just on a life is too short basis. Uh, that, that I was going to ask you what the basis was. Yeah. <laughs> so
0: every once in a while, there's someone who has a potentially legitimate uh, First Amendment yeah. claim.
1: I don't have to represent them all. Uh, uh, so how do you how do you choose which ones you do and don't? I don't have uh, rules. I have instincts. Uh, I, mean, I try not to do it on the basis that I'll only take the New York Times or great responsible institutions. There are situations in which it's not so much that I stay away because they're so awful, although those situations have existed. Maybe it's a cop-out. Maybe. Uh, I don't think so. You know, I'm, I'm busy, so I can choose. <laughs> right. If I were just sitting around, <laughs> there, I, either you do the case or uh, or you don't. Uh, all I'm doing is sort of acknowledging that that there are very there are cases I just as soon not be the lawyer, and that look, there are people who think that my representation in the Citizens United case I was about to was get worse to that. than any pornography yeah, case. That was my
0: segue. You know, there there are. You have a lot of people, erstwhile liberal allies and friends and others, who think that Citizens United is a terrible Supreme Court decision. Mm-hmm. The, the senator that I used to work for felt the same way. What, can you just summarize sure. in a sentence or two what that case was?
1: Right. Well, it's a case that rose out of uh, uh, a conservative group, which received uh, some, some, really not much, but some funding from uh, corporations and was itself in the corporate format that did an hour-long—I would call it a hit job—on Hillary Clinton when she was seeking the Democratic nomination, which uh, then Senator Obama wound up winning. And it was an hour filled with why she shouldn't be president and why she shouldn't be trusted. And uh, that's— Apropos earlier question, I mean, that was an interesting case for me in a lot of ways. But one was that I've always admired Hillary Clinton. But my view from the start was uh, we had a statute which made it a crime for that program to be on television, cable, or satellite within 60 days of an election or 30 days of a primary. And my reaction was, how could that possibly be? How could it possibly be? a piece of direct political advocacy about who ought to be president, was criminalized. And it did not persuade me that because the Speaker was a corporation or had some corporate funding, that that was an appropriate basis for moving away from what would obviously have been a well-decided uh, First Amendment law. Now, in part, that's because I have represented a lot of corporations claiming First Amendment rights that are not newspapers or broadcasters. I mean, I represented what Barnes & Noble when Ken Starr subpoenaed them to turn over information about uh, what book Monica Lewinsky gave to, to President Clinton. And we took the position that a bookstore had First Amendment rights not to reveal that information. I've represented universities. All of them are corporations. What happened with the Barnes and Noble case? It's been a while. Uh, we won that. Okay. Uh, uh, one of these sort of unreported district court. Here, here's the answer, guys. Go home. Right. Wins uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, unappealable because it barely existed uh, in the in the literature. So you know, a lot of my work has been representing companies, corporations including some for-profit corporations.
0: You know, the argument on the part of a lot of people who I think are people of good faith and care about democracy, and there's there's various aspects of democracy to care about, right? There's the right to free speech. There's a right to direct election. There's a right to participate. There's all sorts of things. And there are some people who say, well, the consequence of Citizens United is that there is a, a thumb on the scale for rich people and for corporations, and they have an undue advantage in democracy. How do you respond to that?
1: First, look. I think the rich people, people with more money, do have more power. I don't. I don't think that's deniable. It's also true that at a time when newspapers reigned supreme in the country in terms of delivering news, uh, certain newspapers, particularly in one newspaper towns, had enormous power, played a very major role in who was elected. My uh, my view is that. Uh, The form the speaker takes shouldn't be the the deciding issue. And incidentally, I mean, we do have a lot of data now showing that the one thing people feared most from Citizens United, which was corporate control of the political process, has simply not occurred. If for no other reason than that corporations are not spending vast amounts of money supporting candidates. Uh, individuals are. Wealthy individuals are. If you look, for example, at the 2015-2016 uh, records that the Federal Election Commission keeps, as, as I have, you see that, that in those two years of all the federal elections, that approximately uh, $1 billion was given to super PACs by individuals, about a quarter of a billion by unions and other groups, and 80 million by corporations. So it has not been corporations that have led by any means the spending of money uh, in elections. Now, that doesn't answer the broader egalitarian question of what we should do about the fact that some people have so much more money than others. The Koch brothers, for example, they do spend it on elections. They also spend it on, uh, you know, trying to affect legislation uh, and trying to affect a variety of things. I don't think that the way to deal with that is to limit speech. If we want to step in in a variety of economic ways, taxation or other ways, antitrust laws... That's one thing. But to say that because you have more money, even a lot more money, that you shouldn't be able to spend it on that which the First Amendment protects the most, political speech, is unacceptably dangerous and, I thought and think, and the Supreme Court thinks, inconsistent with the First Amendment. When you go to events, dinners...
0: Yeah, cocktail parties. The answer is, and yes. people disagree with you on this point. Do you
1: engage them, or do you save yes. those arguments for yes. court?
0: And how no, does that, no. how does oh, that go? No. For, and how does that go? Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, and, you know, I hear it a lot.
1: And you know, I hear a lot from my liberal friends. A sort of, how could you? I've spoken a lot on campuses. I usually bring the the, the film of the movie with me, which is very strong stuff for my side because it. I mean, whatever else it is, it is the quintessential political speech. I mean, all it is is how terrible Hillary Clinton is and why you shouldn't vote for her. There, there are always going to be losses as well as gains by allowing more speech. Hate speech does harm. Other sorts of speech do have adverse effects uh, on the public. The lack of equality in, in the country... Uh, leads to to some people having a lot more power than other people. And the question is whether uh, you, whether you the, the way to deal to... with any of that is to limit speech.
0: You said something about how your liberal friends were angry with you about the role you played in C- Citizens United. On this issue of you know traditionally how people think of liberal and conservative, and I hope I have lis- listeners in both categories, but probably more in one category than the other. What does it mean? to be liberal or conservative in the context of the First Amendment. You know, there's some strange bedfellows that get made, right?
1: Yes, there are. And and one of the good, favorable, and optimistic things that I think that has been happening uh, is that there has been more of a confluence of views in recent years than ever before. The conservative members of the Supreme Court have come a long way... Uh, towards very fervent defense of the First Amendment. Now, in part, that's because it's their people and their causes which they think are being oppressed. I mean, when you look at what? uh, Protests at at abortion centers, right? You know, we've had legislation designed to protect women as they walk in in and out of abortion. A certain... certain, certain, uh A zone of safety of some yards. A zone of safety. The question is, is there a zone of safety from speech? And that's come up twice in the Supreme Court. And the conservative members of the court adopted wholesale, very broad views of the First Amendment, which I fully agree with them on. Justice Scalia in particular wrote, and Justice Kennedy, movingly uh, about, and I have every reason to think they meant it the need for very broad First Amendment protections uh, in these areas. And one of the reasons I do have uh, you know, some real hope in the First Amendment area is that we've had a number of cases now in which awful speech, the Westboro Baptist Church, that's an eight-to-one opinion protecting speech which is not just ugly but painful. And we're the only country in the world that would protect that speech. And I think it speaks well for us in that it's cheering. It gets protected. And there are other cases also, 8 to 1 sometimes, 9 to nothing, protecting speech here that no other country would protect. Floyd Abrams, it's an honor to have you on the show. Thanks very
0: much. Now, this is the point in the show where I talk about something in the news that struck me. This week, it's kind of easy because it relates to a little bit of news that I made along with other folks. Some of you may know this, but on Monday, uh, I wrote an op-ed jointly with former Republican governor of New Jersey and former EPA administrator under George W. Bush, Christine Todd Whitman, announcing that she and I will be co-chairing a task force under the auspices of the very great Brennan Center at NYU Law School called the National Task Force on Rule of Law and Democracy. That's a long, technical-sounding name, but the idea behind it is something that I think is long overdue, and that is to figure out the things, not in the immediate term, responding to the daily news cycle on an hourly, if not minute-by-minute basis, of ways that our institutions are being undermined, ways that democracy is being threatened, but to think long-term, over time, about the ways that Congress can respond, States can respond, and maybe even the public at large can respond to all the things that are being done to change, I think, the character of our institutions, including the Department of Justice, including how elections are operated, including what kind of disclosure is made to the public. And the important thing about this is it's not a partisan effort. It's not people on one side of the aisle or another side of the aisle. We're coming together jointly, people on the Democratic side and people on the Republican side who care about things more important than their party affiliation. And I'll tell you that it has been upsetting to see so many people who put party before country. There are some things that are universal to both sides because they're about being true to the character of America. And by the way, this effort is not something new. Americans have always thought about what is best for the country after overreaching activities by a president. It was once the case, the norm, that a president only served two terms. That was not in the law. That was not in the Constitution. George Washington, in his great wisdom, decided he didn't want to be a king. And he stepped down after two terms. And it was a great precedent that was set for the country. And then along came another great president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, who basically saved us from Nazism. And he decided to run four times. And even though he was popular, even though he's lionized around the country, even though he's remembered as one of the great presidents of all time, Americans decided to do the most difficult thing you can do, basically, in the law, amend the Constitution, because they thought, you know what? That precedent had been broken, and it was bad that it had been broken, and no one should serve more than two terms. I'll give you another example that we mentioned in the op-ed. John Kennedy, popular president, appointed his 35-year-old brother, Bobby Kennedy, to be the AG. I happen to be a fan of Bobby Kennedy and have read about him for many years. And by many accounts, he did a pretty good job as attorney general. But even then, Congress decided on a bipartisan basis to enact nepotism laws because it wasn't actually cool for a president to put in his sibling in the White House. And so as we sit here today, thinking about how we can make America strong and its values and its institutions strong, going into the next decades, we should consider the same kind of thing. Should presidents be required by law? to show their tax returns? Should presidents be required by law to avoid conflicts of interest by divesting themselves from their businesses? Should presidents be required by law not to have you know, their daughter or their son-in-law or others in their family as assistants in the White House? These are, I think, important questions that I'm looking forward to addressing with a bipartisan group of folks through this task force. And I'll update you from time to time about how we're doing. And in the very near future, I'm hoping we have Governor Whitman on as well. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Floyd Abrams, and thank you for listening. If you like the show, and you've heard me say this before, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Thanks to everybody who gave us a review last week. We got like, I think, a 1,000 new ones. If you really do like the show, and you think it's terrific, you should give a five-star rating, not a one-star rating, I think a few folks wrote things that were very positive, said how they love the show, they listen every week, and gave it one star. So just to review, one star is the worst, five stars is the best. It is your First Amendment right to give it one star. But if you like it, let's go with five stars. Send me your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara, or even better, give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and WNYC Studios. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Chris Berube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAbee. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay Tuned. Simply Safe is the home security for right now. When feeling safe at home has never been more important. Simply Safe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your whole home 24/7, starting at 50 cents a day. Order online easily. Open the box, place the sensors, plug it in, and your home is protected around the clock. No technician has to come to your house. Head to simplysafe.com/preet and get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee.